the reason I'm sitting on the songs, I know, is two weeks ago I was up here and through, the, through having a boot on one side, I started getting a cramp by the time I was doing communion and I was thinking I was going to have to call Greg or Tim to come and help save me, save the day. So uh, anyway, I'll be going back to the surgeon tomorrow in Charlotte. Uh, that would be a, another prayer request I would ask you for. James uh, opens this, this section that we're about to go into with a direct address. He, he writes to his folks and, and he says this, my brothers, he has a genuine concern for them. He has, he's, seen many, he's seen many of them claim to have faith, uh, a belief in the Messiah, a belief in the gospel, and yet they're living relatively the same way as they had lived before. For many, not much had changed besides what they said they believed. James has a concern that that kind of faith, that that kind of belief doesn't save. It doesn't produce a life of union and communion with Christ. It doesn't even uh, help with, to address the problems of, of life. Uh, so in order to teach them of the useful and saving faith, James raises a question in verse 14 of chapter 2. And he says this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? You know, what good is a kind of faith like that? A faith that doesn't transform your life. A faith that doesn't result in the one professing it to actually change and be doing the works of the Lord. We're going to consider James's answer to that question in two different parts. Uh, the first part we'll do this week, verses 15 through 20, and this part number two we'll do in a couple of weeks uh, with a break in between. Uh, verses 21 through 26. What I want to do is briefly walk through verses 14 through 26 altogether, just a, a very broad, broad outline of how James approaches this question to what use is this, this kind of faith, a faith that, that doesn't work. So uh, the question is raised in verse 14, and then in verses 15 and 16, James gives an illustration, uh, which we've already read today, actually, of some brothers and sisters that are in need, and how one that claims to have faith responds to their needs. Uh, that's the direct connection of what's gone before, that compassionate care of the needy. That's how it's connected with the text that's uh, right before it. In verse 17, James gives a concluding observation, and he says, uh, for the first of many times, faith without works is dead, being by itself. Uh, if faith only says something, even if it's a good something, like a blessing, and it doesn't do something about meeting the need, then James says it's a dead faith. In verses 18 and 19, James uses a literary device known as a diatribe, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, uh, to raise an objection so, uh, and, and to the teaching that he's, that he's doing. And he, he says that faith and works necessarily go together, and the objector says, no, they can be separate. James follows that objection with a response in verse 19, and then he makes a, another concluding statement, faith without works is useless. Now that's part one, and we're going to hit those verses more in a few minutes. Uh, part two, James continues answering the question, what good is this kind of faith, by giving us two examples. Uh, he gives us the example of Abraham, and he gives us the example of Rahab to show that true faith always results in transformed actions or works. In verses 21 through 23, James gives the example of Abraham and how he was considered to be right with God or righteous because of his works. And then in verse 24, James addresses the readers and kind of, he, he says some teaching and then he kind of makes a stop and, and, and he um, addresses the, the readers and says, faith without works is useless. It can't help anything. 
It can only deceive, it can't really help. So um, verse 25, he gives the example of Rahab and Rahab's faith and, and shows that her faith worked. And then he gives the conclusion for all the section in verse 26, and he's basically repeating it again. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I've heard uh, that in any good preaching, the preacher will tell you what he's going to tell you, then he's going to tell you, and then he's going to tell you what he told you. Um, and James leaves little doubt um, as to the main teaching. Three times he directly says his main teaching. Verse 17 says this, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. And verse 20 says faith without works is useless. And then verse 26, faith without works is dead again. So the importance of this teaching, James has made very clear. Uh, to mess true faith is to mess true life. So then what is the nature of this true faith? What is the kind of faith that's saving faith? What kind of faith is useful faith? Uh, so today, part one. Uh, the question's been raised already, what use is it if somebody says he has faith, but he doesn't have any works? We need to make a couple of observations, uh, and hopefully we'll make them several times through the next several weeks. James isn't, isn't teaching that you have to add works to your faith. He's not saying that. He's teaching that true faith, by its nature, will bring and be characterized by good works. Uh, it's going to be necessary for us to stir good works up between the brothers, uh, to pursue good works, but we don't have to add them on. Um, they come with true faith. They uh, stem from true faith. If one accepts the implanted word of God that we saw in James chapter 1, and he's, by, by the exercises of God's will, if he's been brought forth a new life, uh, then the result will be a, a new life, a transformed life, a life whose faith is characterized by works that God is pleased with. So the indicators of, or tests of genuine faith then are, are the obedient works. We will know them by their what? By their fruit, right? We'll know the nature of their faith by their fruit. So the section that we're in expands on the true religion of chapter 1, true religion that works. And it's really the same argument that James uses in chapter 1, that we need to be not only hearers of the word, but doers also, right? So he's really um, saying that yet again. We need to address an apparent contradiction between James and another writer of the scriptures, Paul. I think that simply quoting from each of their writings will suffice at least initially uh, in helping us understand the nature and substance of their apparent contradiction. Let me read from Romans 3 where Paul says this, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James and James 2, the section that we're in, says this. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now the next slide, I put them side by side. And if you take just a second to look at them, I think you'll see that they seem to be very uh, contradictory one to another, right? Uh, James is saying that we're justified by works, and Paul says we're justified by faith alone, apart from Work. So on the surface, it seems like the, the two are teaching completely opposite things uh, regarding faith and works and justification. And since justification is the foundation of our standing with the Lord, uh, there's hardly a more important and significant conflict to be worked out in Christendom 
and in our very lives. In order to show how significant this, this, con, uh, this seemingly contradiction is, I consider this. Martin Luther was led to call James an epistle of straw. He threw it out. He denied that it was even God's word because of this apparent contradiction. So it's pretty important that we understand what's going on here. We're going to hit uh, only one real point in this contradiction today, and then we'll take it up a little more directly uh, next time when we hit the last part of James's section on, on faith and works. So it's important to see that the apparent contradiction between James and, and Paul uh, comes because they're writing from very different vantage points. And they're also combating very different problems in the church. Paul was fighting against a tradition that, that promoted a false work salvation, a legalism. So he was fighting against that. While James was fighting against uh, those people who had a, a faith light, a light faith, a faith that didn't really come with works. Paul was saying this, you cannot come to Christ uh, through works. Works can never get you there. And James was saying that after you come to Christ, that obedience to his law, the works of God, are imperative. You have to have them. That was the two vantage points. So I want to consider just one passage today that really shows that the two are in harmony, perfect harmony. They're saying the same thing. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So when Paul uh, dealt with the abuse of the doctrine of justification, he said this, it's not that you just add works to it like external works like circumcision. That's not going to do anything for you. That's not going to win favor with God. What then is the kind of faith that we need? It's the faith that works through love. And uh, that count, what, what counts with God is faith. But what kind of faith? What kind of uh, work. What kind of faith is faith that works through love? That kind of faith is useful. That kind of faith is good for salvation. That's the kind of faith that Paul and James are both talking about. By its nature, a faith that produces love and is stirred up by love. A faith that is stirred up by the lavish love of Christ's redemption for you and for me. A faith that is stirred up by the love and affection of brothers and sisters in Christ and the body of Christ. And what Paul was making a point of when saying that the faith that is um, working in love is exactly the point that James is making all through our text today. Uh, over and over and over, James is saying that a faith that doesn't love and a faith that doesn't love in actions, they're absolutely useless. That faith is useless faith. So James is concerned with the same kind of faith that Paul is concerned with. James is concerned with a kind of if you want to say counterfeit faith or false faith that doesn't produce love. Uh, this faith, James says, can't justify anybody. It can't make anybody right with God. And he asked the question that we've already raised, what use is it if you have that kind of faith? Um, so what kind of works are James interested in? The same kind of works that Paul is interested in, the works of faith through love. And he illustrates it in the next two verses, in verses 15 and 16. It gives an illustration very similar to the one that he gave in verses 2 and 3, where he shows a real-life example in, in the church situation, and he uses that in his teaching. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? 
we could, there's several English translations for what use is that. I looked up a few of them. It's like, what good is it? What profit is it? What does it gain anyone if you have a faith like that? And the form of the question comes with a clear expected answer of there's no, no gain. There's no favor. There's no benefit. There's no blessing to be had from that kind of faith. James uses the word works uh, in a very general sense, actions that, uh, that are done in obedience to God and to God's word. Um, I don't know how many people hear King James Version only, but those people that are King James Version only, this is, this is a big mistake in the King James Version. They miss the whole point of what James is saying. The King James translates part of this is that it says, can faith save him? As if there's no type of faith that can save alone. And clearly, that's exactly against the point that James is making. James says, I will show you my faith, the kind of faith that saves, by my work, a faith that truly saves and is useful. But almost every other translation that I looked at, actually all the other translations that are familiar to us in English, they get the point, and they say this, can that kind of faith save him? That's a pretty big difference. Uh, Throughout the argument that James lays out, uh, the Greek is such that it, when he talks about the faith, it's always referring back to the first faith that he's talking about, the faith that has no works. Can the faith that has no works, can that save? Can the faith that has no works be useful um, to life? That's what he's talking about. So James is uh, con- contesting um, a particular faith, a faith that doesn't have works. The faith is what, um, th- this kind of faith is what this man uh, has who, who claims to have works, and, and yet the main point, James's main point is this, that this kind of faith, according to the Bible, is not even real faith at all. So that kind of faith that has no works is not faith, at least not biblical faith, at all. So the illustration functions a lot like the, the first illustration in verses 2 and 3, and uh, it, it helps James make a concrete point. James describes a desperate situation, a brother and a sister, uh, and they're without clothes and they're without food. Uh, the picture is somebody who is uh, coming habitually, and they're, they're habitually lacking daily need for food uh, for life and, and the health that goes along with that. And they habitually come, and they don't have adequate clothing to meet the needs of the situation that they're in. Um, and the illustration is of one who comes face-to-face with that situation, and what that one does is uh, they, they give a blessing. And they say, go in peace, be warm, be filled. So uh, we need to understand that person's not responding angrily or reprehensibly. Um, They're actually kind. They're giving a a blessing, but it's really a pious blessing. We could call it a religious cover-over or cover-up. What what he's really doing is a simple, I will pray for you that somebody else meets your needs. I hope it gets met. You know, I hope you get better. I hope you find food. I hope you find clothing. I really do. And yet that person is not moved personally to be involved. He's not moved to make an investment of time or energies to that person. The point is confronted with the real needs, the one who says that they have faith and does nothing to meet the actual needs. It says their good wishes are useless. They're useless. Jesus grants entrance into his kingdom based on works of charity. I know. Sometimes we might need to stop and say, okay, explain that. What I'm going to do right now is just read where that's true in Matthew chapter 25. Don't have this on the screen so you can listen more carefully. 
But here, um, Jesus grants some people entrance into the kingdom based on their work of charity and love, and he dismisses some people from his presence because they fail to relieve the needs of the destitute and the distress in this passage. Jesus, quoting from one of the people in need, says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. The illustration, by way of analogy, makes the theological point that is the real burden and passion of James. The illustration, and in the illustration, the words of the uncaring believer, or so-called believer, who fails to act and help the person in need, they're useless. And they're just as useless as the one who professes faith and who's not transformed all the way to the point of investing and giving and, and, and spending their time with folks. So the illustration says that the person who looks and sees and comes face to face with that situation and does nothing personally to help is the same as you and I if we say we have faith and we profess the faith and yet it doesn't change and transform you and me and new life to, to Christ. So one interesting thing to note in that Matthew 25 passage is that he's, he, he lists all sorts of, of needs. He lists the need of, uh, to have friends. He lists the need of being a stranger and to bring them in. Not just physical needs, not just food and clothing, but any type of needs is what James is interested in. So the problem with this kind of faith in verse 17, James makes a statement, is that it's by itself. And he says this, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Doesn't have the right things added to it. A faith that's by itself, that's not accompanied by works, is dead, according to James. It's defective. It lacks something. It's not saving faith. It's not the kind of faith that saves. It's not the kind of faith that's useful to life. It doesn't really help you. It's um, a defective type faith, and that kind of faith is even idolatry. Now think about that. If we have a faith and we say, I believe this to be true, and then we don't act on it, then that faith is an idol. It's an idol because we're worshiping it and we think we're okay because of that, and yet it deceives us. So once again, we have to emphasize the point that James, can, James continue, continually emphasizing. James is not really contrasting faith with works. He's not saying that there's two alternate options of, of how we approach God or how we become right with God. What he's doing is really contrasting a faith uh, that because it's lacking and inherently defective and it produces no works, he's contrasting that faith with a faith that's genuine and, and that results in a transformed life. That's what he's contrasting. James continues in verses 18 through 20, and he says this, But someone may well say, If you have faith, I have my works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. This next section is really hard. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So James uh, here is, is using a literary device known as a diatribe. How many of you guys have ever heard of a diatribe? You're thinking, is that some Indian thing? Or what? You don't really know. Uh, a diatribe is a technique where the writer or the speaker anticipates an objection or a question uh, concerning his teaching being raised by people. 
And what he does, instead of waiting for it to be raised, uh, he actually raises it himself. And he raises it by indicating a, a, a somebody saying it to himself, not a real person, but he kind of says, oh, someone may say, or you might ask the question, that kind of thing. An example of that is uh, Paul uses that all the time. I, and I think that's kind of brilliant. A speaker's there and he anticipates based on what he's teaching that you're gonna have a question. Instead of waiting for the question to be uh, brought up, he, he puts it out there himself and then he can speak to that particular issue. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is preaching about bodily resurrection, that there's going to be a resurrection of our body. And he asked the same question very similarly to what we have in James. But someone might ask, how are the dead raised? And one of the places that he uses it that, that I really love is in Romans 5 and Romans 6. Um, in Romans 5, Paul teaches this. He says, where sin increases, grace does what? It abounds all the more. So where there's this much sin... God's grace covers over it. And if there's this much sin, God's grace covers over it. And you can kind of get a, a visual picture that where there's this much sin, there's more grace. And so, therefore, Paul knows that this is such great news, you might be tempted to ask this question or, 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 or live like this. Man, if, if where sin abounds, grace increases all the more. I'm going to sin tons because then there's more grace. And so Paul puts that question out there as if somebody actually raised it and then he speaks to it. And what's his answer? Should we live like that way? No, God forbid. May it never be. Um, and so we have here in verse 18 uh, a similar uh, device used for teaching. And he says this, but someone may well say. And so there's an objector to James's teaching. James is teaching that faith and works necessarily come together. And this objector uh, and we know that he's speaking against James because he calls him a foolish fellow uh, a little bit later in the text. And, and so this, object, this objector say, hey, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And we have those folks all, all over the place. This week, I had some in my family that were kind of arguing back and forth. They weren't directly arguing, but one would say, man, you know, you have your, your theology and your high truth and we actually work. We actually, we actually go and help the poor. And they were setting up a contrast. And the other one was like, well, we teach scripture. And, you know, they go, we go. And one of my cousins is going to a church that, that preaches expositorily now. First time he's ever been to a church that goes, you know, verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. And he's real excited for that. Uh, and then this other one of my family members, um, and this is going to go on tape, so I got to be careful, uh, says, you know, hey, you know, we're right. You know, we have the truth. Well, your truth doesn't do you any good because you're not using it. And we have that all the time. We have uh, both sides are saying we're better and we're better. Uh, you might have seen uh, the, the little billboards that say, share the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you heard that? You know, share the faith, use words if necessary. What they're saying is like, really, just if we work and we're kind and we're good and we help people, that's the gospel. You know, that's what's really necessary. But then you also have the other folks, a lot of times they're Presbyterian, uh, they say, I believe this particular truth, and because I believe this particular truth, that makes me okay. Well, the problem with that is both miss the gospel. Um, and holding on to those particular things, they may miss faith itself. James doesn't want that. James responds to this objector, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works, and he says, um, I will show you my faith by my works. 
That's how he responds to the objector. And he, and he says, says this, that true works of obedience flow from a heart uh, that's been implanted by the Word of God. Uh, true works flow from a heart that's been changed. So in contrast to the objector who's arguing that you can have a genuine faith without having works, James insists that the two are always bound together and they come together and they're found together. James's response is found in verses 18, last part of it through 19. And he begins this challenge, show me your faith apart from deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I actually do. And then he turns to the objector and he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, that's a good confession. That's a, that's a good truth. Um, and James is writing to Jewish Christians and that truth, God is one, is called the Shema. It's, it's, their, it's a great truth that God is one. There's the triune God. Um, and then he says, that's a good confession. The problem is not with the confession itself. It's a good confession. The problem is that implied in the text is that that confession doesn't go beyond the verbal stating of the facts to touch the heart and to touch the life. One of the commentators I was reading says this, it is a good thing, and I, I would add it's a necessary thing, but he said it's a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it's unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. If that good theology doesn't grip our hearts and change our lives, then it it's no good. It's useless being by itself. He goes on and he talks about the demons. Even the demons believe that confession, and uh, that's a terrifying thing. Did you know that demons are probably the most orthodox theologians that there are? There are no atheist demons. None. In fact, uh, they, they could recite the Apostles' Creed with us and believe it. That's scary. They're Trinitarian. They believe in God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they do even more than that. They shudder. The point that James is making is this. There's a, there's, there's a faith, a type of faith, and it's a strong faith if you're talking about just what they actually believe and assent to. That's no true faith at all. It's not saving faith. It's not useful faith. And it's a false faith that only brings deception. As with the demons, their good confession would only bring more condemnation. The same is true for the people who make a profession and are not followed up. It's not followed up by a life that's transformed. That's terrifying. If we believe and say we believe truth and we're not changed by it, it brings more condemnation. James closes the section in verse 20 by restating the point again, faith without works is dead. Faith that does not work doesn't work. I'll let you think about that. It does no good. It's dead and it's useless. Let me ask you, kids, this is late in the sermon, but I've been using, we don't have as many kids in here. Some of you are back there. So kids, listen up. Um, and all you big kids, listen up too. Now let's, let's imagine, uh, kids, that you get into a situation and you're like, man, I need to get out of this. I'm kind of stuck. My leg is stuck. And, you know, you're walking through the woods and your leg gets entrapped and your, your mom or dad come and you're like, help, I'm stuck. And they're like, oh, I hope you can get out. And they go keep, and they keep on walking. Is that helpful? No. Okay. Not helpful. Yeah, that's the same thing that James is saying. A, a faith that says, I believe this, and then it doesn't transform your heart all the way to the point of investing in people, caring about people, that kind of faith, it doesn't save. That kind of faith is useless. 
And further, it's actually condemning. Biblical faith is a rich faith. It's a transforming faith. It's a faith that works through love from the heart. It's not a, oh, bless you, faith. It's a sacrificial, love-giving faith. And I was thinking that, man, if living hope could be moved more and more and more toward that kind of faith, a faith that doesn't deceive, that's not dead, that isn't like the demon's word-only faith, uh, not a useless faith, but a faith that touches every area of our life, a faith that's moved by sharing and showing each other the love of Christ, and by sharing and showing each one and one another the love of Christ directly, a faith that's growing more and more to work from the love of Christ uh, and through love itself into hard situations being poured out for the sake of the kingdom, although we would have that kind of faith. That's the only kind of faith that saves, that's useful. Maybe today you've been convicted that your faith is kind of like the demons. You believe all the truths. You can say the Apostles' Creed and believe it. You believe that God is three in one. You believe all the deep truths of Scripture, and you even believe the deep truths of how one comes to know Christ. And yet, you're not really living the works of God. Useless faith. Maybe you're ones that are doing a lot of good works, and yet, like Paul said, you're doing all that external works, but your heart hadn't been transformed and hadn't been changed, and you think you're okay because of what you're doing. You know, Paul's concerned with many who think they have fruit, and they don't. And he says that your works can never make you right with God. They can't come close. They always lack. They always fall short. James is concerned with the many who don't have true faith, but they have a false one, and they think that I'm okay because I, I believe certain things, and it doesn't really change them. Both things are, both, both Paul and James are moving us to a faith that works, a faith that is a transforming faith. Salvation isn't simply believing the right stuff. Um, it is being transformed and made new. And, and salvation isn't simply doing the right stuff. Um, if we, we recall just from last week, James, we just got through saying, it's like if you break one law, then what are you considered? A lawbreaker. So salvation is not simply believing the right stuff. It's not simply doing the right stuff. You and I need Jesus to give us a transforming faith, to freely give us new life. And then after we have that transforming faith, we need to give ourselves over to this new life. And in the body, we need to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We need to show one another the goodness of Christ. We need to pull the weeds. We need to till the soil. We need to remove the rocks. We need to water the plants. Uh, We need to do the good works of Christ for the glory of the King and His kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the word that we've heard today. Father, it's terrifying in one sense. There's many here, maybe if we're not there right now, times in our life that we think we're okay because of what we believe and say we believe. And Father, there's other times that maybe even the same people have thought they're okay because of what they do. And Father, both things miss the mark of true faith. And Father, we thank you that James is teaching us about true faith, living faith, the kind of faith that's useful. Father, the kind of faith that brings us into relationship with you and and to one another, that that lends a hand, that helps, that goes into where there's hurts and pains and And Father, does kingdom work in those places. Father, I pray that 
this body would show forth those kind of works through that kind of faith more and more. Father, not a false faith that deceives, but a true faith that from the heart believes that our only hope is in Jesus. And out of that hope, that we have a hope to glorify you through working the works of, of the King and in your kingdom. Father, I pray that we would stir one another up to love and good deeds, not to the point that we're trusting in those to merit anything. Uh, but Father, we're trusting in the good hope of Jesus and out of a transformed heart flow good works, obedient works. Uh, Father, works that go and invest in people, regardless of their circumstance or situations or even ability to repay. Father, we pray today as we transition to your table that we see that's exactly what you've done, that you've seen the needs, you've gone in, into where people can't repay but have great need. And Father, you've given all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.